All right, we're in chapter 15 this evening of uh, 1 Samuel. So we're still in the Old Testament. We're going to be here uh, for quite a while. We're actually going to go into 2 Samuel when we're done with 1 Samuel. But tonight we're in chapter 15. And uh, next chapter we actually have an introduction into David. So things get real exciting as we turn our focus towards David. But we need to finish up with Saul and we need to finish strong. I wish Saul had finished strong. He did not. Even though he was king for 40 years, yet he, he uh, was a shadow of the man that God needed to be the king over Israel. We had said before that the, Saul was the people's choice, and that's very true. Yet, don't forget that all the way back in Deuteronomy, God gave forewarning and said that there's going to come a time when you're going to have a king. And, and so God, it wasn't that God himself was against the monarchy, uh, but he wanted a king after his own heart. The people forced the issue. They kept asking for a king before God was ready to give them a king. And so that's why they got Saul. And so now, you know, we're coming to the end of Saul's, uh, at least what it's speaking, about Saul's uh, reign, and we're going to begin the reign of David. But let's go ahead if we can. Chapter 15 is a very interesting chapter. Uh, what we saw in Saul's life as a crack, so to speak, in his character armor in the past, uh, we now see that that crack has widened greatly and Saul is about to fall into the crack of his own pride. And so that's what unfolds for us tonight. Verse 1, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, before we get into the meat of that passage that we just read, and we're going to spend some time here tonight because very important that we not fall into the trap that so many fall into. Uh, there are Christians who just cannot in their mind imagine God being this cruel and this harsh with any people. And then there are critics and there are atheists who use this passage to show you that God is not a loving, kind, caring, good God. And that's why they don't believe in God. And what we're going to do, hopefully tonight, by the Word of God and the work of the Spirit, is unpack what we just read so that it makes sense and you understand. I'm not saying you'll like it, uh, but, you, but I'm going to explain to you from Scripture, not from my opinion, but from Scripture, what the Bible says about this situation. On the surface, we can read a passage in the Bible and it can, we can go, Ugh, I don't like that. And we all have those passages, and here's how I know it. Because if you open your Bible up that you've had for five, seven, ten years, there are certain pages that are white. They're clean. They've never been turned to. 
and we tend to stick with the stuff that we like in the Bible. But Peter on the, on the docks off of Ephesus, off of the, the city of Ephesus, met with the elders of, of Ephesus, and he had spent three years among them. And he meets at the dock as he's traveling by, and he says, meet me down there. They show up, and he says, I want you to remember that I never shrunk back from giving you the whole counsel of God. I taught you all the scriptures, not just some of them. So he didn't skip over 1 Samuel chapter 15 as he was teaching them. And we shouldn't either. We're going to look into it and let God speak to us, okay? Now, understand before we go there that this is Samuel speaking to Saul. Okay, what are we talking about? We're talking about the spiritual leader of Israel speaking to the political and the uh, military leader of Israel. The message is very clear. Who is the message from? While Samuel is doing the speaking, it's from God. He is the spiritual leader. He's sent by God to speak to the military political leader. And the word is very clear. Destroy Amalek for what they did to Israel when they were helpless and escaping from Egypt. The order is crystal clear from God. Annihilate. Literally wipe them off the face of the earth. I'm not saying that because I take joy in seeing any people harmed, much less annihilated. I'm saying it because that is the truth. This is what God is saying to Saul through Samuel. And he goes to the point of saying, I want you to take out all their people, down to the infants, and everything that has breath that lives among them, all the animals. Now, many people struggle with this. Make no mistake, this is a total act of judgment from God to the Amalekites. This is an act of judgment, okay? You've got to understand that. The critics and atheists won't see it that way because they don't understand that. They don't know that God is both just and He's merciful. He's both righteous and He's both holy. And justice fits in His holiness. You can't have a holy God without justice. Any more than you can have a holy God who is not loving. In fact, His justice flows out of His love. And so we're going to explain this tonight. When Israel escaped Egypt, why was God so harsh with Amalek? Here's why. When Israel escaped Egypt, the first people to attack Israel were the Amalekites. You can find that in Exodus. Just write it down. Those of you who are Bible students and take notes, it's, it's Exodus chapter 17. Now, what's worse is they attacked Israel from behind. Now, I want you to understand, Israel has just escaped Pharaoh. God has led them by the strong arm of the Lord, by the staff that he gave Moses. God has led Israel out of bondage and into freedom. They haven't even gotten to the promised land yet. Amalek doesn't live in the promised land. Remember, God said that when you enter the promised land, take out the people that live there. He didn't say annihilate them. He said drive them out. Just move them out of the land. 
because I'm giving you that land. It's not their land, it's your land. The Amalekites were not one of those people groups. God never had it in for the Amalekites. They lived outside of the Promised Land, on the other side of the Jordan River. So he had no, God had no bone to pick with the Amalekites. But the Amalekites are the ones who saw Israel weak and confused and vulnerable as they had just escaped Egypt and Pharaoh's army. And they, for no other reason than to pounce on a weakling, came after Israel. And they attacked them from behind. Not all the people who were part of this marvelous move of God, taking His holy chosen and dearly loved out of the land of bondage, not all those people could stay close together. Some lagged behind. They were slower. Maybe they were people with physical issues. And those are the ones that Amalek went after. They're a bunch of punks. They're a, bun they're a bunch of they're bullies. And they've gone after Israel for no reason. In fact, Israel even said to them, as we pass through your land, we won't touch your land. We won't eat anything in your land. We won't even drink from your wells. Just allow us to pass through. And they turned on them. And they attacked them. So I want you to get the picture before any of this happened. This is all the way back at the turn when, ex when Israel was just leaving Egypt. In Exodus 17, verse 15, it says that Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And here's what he said, listen. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so it was. So here's the deal. After they attacked Israel for no reason, Moses told Joshua, go do battle. And while you're out battling Amalek, I'm going up on this mountain. And he went up on the mountain and he held up the staff. And as long as his, his staff was raised, uh, Israel was prevailing in the battle. And when the staff would start to fall because his arms were tired, uh, Amalek would begin to prevail. Uh, Aaron and Hur came up, had a rock there. They had Moses sit on the rock and they held up his arms during the battle until Joshua had completely defeated Amalek. After, they, after God defeated Amalek in this way, Mo Moses said, let's build an altar here and let's say, here it is, the Lord is my banner. God has provided this victory for us. And then he said this, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is not going to be the only time that we do battle with this people. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 45, Amalek attacked Israel again while they are still in the wilderness. And then in Judges chapter 3, verse 13, Amalek joined up with the Moabites to attack Israel. In Judges chapter 6, three chapters later, verse 3 and 4, Amalek made it a point to invade Israel. Listen, I'll quote the verse. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, whenever Israel began to put down crops, and they were an agrarian people, they were a farming people, a rural, rural, rural people. And, and, and here, again, Amalek coming in and stealing their crops. 
Okay? It says that uh, in that passage that they did this along with the Midianites. They would come in, quote, and devour the produce of the land, leaving no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. They would take everything from Israel. Leave no, no sheep, no ox, no donkey. What did God tell Saul to do with Amalek and their animals? Take out the sheep, take out the ox, take out the donkey. An eye for an eye. This, what you see in our, in our passage, is an absolute direct judgment of God against Amalek. Later in Judges 6 uh, and 7, they invaded again, and they were fought off by Gideon. So it really was a generation after generation that Moses said, going all the way back, of the Amalekites warring against Israel and against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, because King Saul fails to deliver on God's command to annihilate Amalek, and we're going to see that in this chapter, long after he's gone, his successor David, King David, will have to fight against and try to eradicate the Amalekites. Why? Because Saul didn't do what God told him to do. And God knew that the heart of Amalek, the people, would never turn back to God. They would never trust God. It's not in them to trust God. Their children will rise up. He said it. Moses said it. Generation after generation will war against Israel. Not because Israel's out to get them. Israel was just passing through, but they made Israel the point of their contention, and quite honestly, they made God the point of their contention. Much later, after King David, while the Persians are now ruling the region, a man called Haman, remember him from the book of Esther? He was an Agagite. An Agagite. Who, where does that come from? Well, we're going to see tonight in our text. Who did Saul spare among the Amalek people? Their king. What was his name? Agag. So this man, Haman, coming along, get this, 600 years later, he's an offspring of King Agag's family. And listen to this. He's given great power by the king of the Persians, who is Asuras, and he tried to completely annihilate Israel. God knew way back when he told Saul, take all of them out. Don't leave anybody. Because he knew there would come a day that there would be an Agagite, a Amalek member who would rise up and try to make Israel extinct. Okay? An Agagite was a descendant of the king of Amalek. King Agag. So these events in the book of Esther, they occurred between 483 B.C. and 473 B.C. And this places it sometime after the first exile of the Jews back to Jerusalem. I want to just spend a moment here in the book of Esther. So take your Bible and turn to Esther chapter 3. Again, this, the whole book of Esther covers a period of time of about 10 years. And let me tell you, let me put it in perspective to history, okay? So, so 
the, the exile, or the actual uh, the, the Babylonian captivity, occurred between um, 586 B.C. and 516 B.C. And again, what's happening here in Esther occurred at 483. So just a few years after Israel began to return from Babylon, or from the Persian Empire at that time, back to Jerusalem, some of the Jews chose to stay in Persia. They stayed in Persia. And that's those who were here in the book of Esther, the Jews that are, it's speaking of. So picking up at verse 1, Esther chapter 3, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for, or Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on, the, on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy, look at this, all the Jews. Hitler was not the first. Haman, the people of Mordecai, he wanted to destroy all the people of Mordecai. Look at this, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So any of the Jews who had not returned to Jerusalem, who stayed in that region after the 70-year captivity, let's take them out, every one of them. And who knows, he probably, if he had his way, Let's go now to Jerusalem, let's pursue, and let's take out the rest of them. Okay? So the Amalekites weren't just any old people, okay? They were the nation who more than any other tried to destroy Israel. They had been trying to eradicate and plunder Israel from the very birth of Israel 200 to 400 years before the command that we're reading tonight in 1 Samuel. And they would continue for another 600 years after that's seven to eight hundred year period of time. God knew it all from the beginning that they would be this way. So that explains some of the background to the conflict in our text. It shows that what is being commanded is an act of war in a conflict which the Israelites never started and which was never going to be resolved by negotiation. God knows right now on the earth which nations, which leaders of nations have a heart that can change and which will never change. God knows. He knows everything. He has foreknowledge. And so he knew this about uh, the Amalekites. Now, let's take a moment and remember God's relationship with and his purpose for Israel. This is very important to what we're trying to understand about God's character in asking uh, Saul to annihilate the Amalekites. Okay, Remember this, while Israel was God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved, they weren't chosen so that God could bless them and curse everybody else. Some people feel that way. 
God only chose the Jews and everybody else is out, the Jews are in. That was never God's intention. Listen, from the beginning of choosing the Jews, that was never his intention. You want to know how I know that? Because if I read Genesis chapter 12, we're only 12 chapters into the Bible. And in verse 3, he said, In you, Abraham, all the families on earth shall be blessed. It was never God's intention to only bless Israel. It was his intention to make Israel his people, to be a picture of him. That's what it means, Israel. God governed. That when people look at the nation of Israel, that's different. Those people are different. And they see Israel for who they are. But God's desire was that all the families on the earth would be blessed by Israel. Israel was God's chosen conduit of blessing to the whole world. Amalek had actually had a chance to be there as well. They too could have been one of the conduits. They wouldn't have been Israel. They wouldn't have been His chosen, holy, dearly loved. But they could have been a blessing to others. You know how I know that? Because uh, they descend from Esau. Esau was the one who was to get the birthright. But he sold it for some soup. He didn't respect the blessing. He didn't care about the blessing. He was just for himself. And his descendants are just like him. So, by the time you get to 1 Samuel 15, this group, the Amalekites, have been consistently opposing Israel for hundreds of years, and they have shown zero chance of letting up. But now the question, why kill the children? Why? Because Exodus chapter 17, verse 16 says, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Even the infants are going to one day rise up against God. You and I would say, that's just not right. You, we don't know that. Well, we're speaking as people who have finite understanding. God has foreknowledge. He understands all things from the beginning. We're not talking about an idiot God here who's making wild assumptions and judging people inaccurately. We're talking about the holy judge of the universe who must do right. If he fails to do right, he's not God. That God made the determination based on what he knew about this people. And quite honestly, it's an issue of protection. God is protecting Israel. If the Amalekite army had been defeated once in battle and left to retreat, they would have come back eventually. It would have been limited protection for a limited time. But what God wants is to totally protect for His plan to bless the world forever. He's got to protect Israel so that Israel can be a picture of God to the world and He can bless the world through Israel. So He's really doing this out of protection. Without total destruction of the Amalekites, they were going to keep on coming back and God's plan would not be safe. Hundreds of years before the Lord said He would bring this kind of judgment against Amalek. 
Turn in your Bible quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Don't think that God is short-sighted and comes up with these ideas out of the, you know, just the top of his head in a given moment. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and listen to what God is saying. Remember what Amalek, verse 17, chapter 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail? Those who were lagging behind you and he did not, here it is, he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. God had made His determination long before we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This isn't kind of a last-minute decision from God. God doesn't work that way. He's not limited by a half brain. God has more than a brain. He has everything He needs. He has foreknowledge. He has omniscience. He's all-knowing all the time. <laughs> I can't fathom that, but I'm so thankful that I worship a God is, that is like that. Amen? So the Amalekites committed a terrible sin against Israel. They attacked while Israel was weak and vulnerable. They did this for no other reason than violence, greed, and a disdain for God. God hates it when the strong take advantage of the weak, especially when the weak are His people. So while God said that through Israel I'm going to bless the world, He also said anybody who blesses Israel will be blessed. And anybody who curses Israel will be cursed. And he told that in the Abrahamic covenant way back in Genesis. So he means it. And that's what he's doing here. Although this happened more than 400 years earlier, God still held it against the Amalekites because time doesn't erase sin. Not in God's eyes. Time can help us to move on from sin. Okay, When we, somebody sins against us, we can actually change over time. God never changes. Within him, the Bible says, there is no shadow of turning. He's the same all the time. That is the beauty of our God. And so only the blood of Jesus can erase sin. Amen? And Jesus hasn't died yet. So God is working with his people in an age of Old Testament covenant, which is the law. The soul, the Bible says in Leviticus, the soul that sins shall die. The father shall not suffer for the sins of the son, neither shall the son suffer for the sins of the father. If you sin, you die. And you will have to wonder then, you know, why are we still living? Because we've all sinned. But the beauty is Christ went to the cross to reconcile men back to God. All men. Isn't that wonderful? But that doesn't mean, listen now, that all men are being drawn to God. And the reason for that is because not all men seek God, and God knows it. God already knows who will and who won't. You and I don't. So therefore, we go after every person to see them come to Christ. We want to seek and save the lost. Everybody. We go after everybody. But there will be some who just look at you like you're from another, another planet as you're sharing Jesus. They just don't get it. They walk away and make fun of you. Guess what? 
it's very likely, very possible that God has already turned their heart. He's hardened it. In other words, they were already bent away from God. And so God says, okay, if that's what you want. And He hands them over to that sinful nature, and they harden up, and they never come to a saving faith. In fact, some come, go to the opposite direction to the point that they no longer even feel guilt for sin. Not even their own conscience works right. We were supposed to have a guilty conscience. So if you say, well, I got a guilty conscience, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing when you have a guilty conscience. That's why God gave you a conscience. He wants you to feel guilty for sin. Now, under the cross of Jesus Christ, since He died on the cross, my conscience still wants to remind me of my sin. That's what the job of the conscience is, is to condemn sin and condemn the sinner. But I have to remind my conscience, yes, I was guilty, and I will be guilty tomorrow of something. But Jesus Christ has covered all past, present, future sin for me. Amen. You have to remind your conscience. So you shouldn't have to live under a guilty conscience if you're under the blood of Jesus Christ. But I am thankful that that conscience that I have still works. At least, if he's like, oh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, David Wilkerson, he said, your conscience is your soul sergeant. He stands at attention. And when you sin, he pops his heels. Sinner! He nails you every time. He said he just doesn't know that the war over your soul has already been won by Jesus Christ. And you have to tell him, hey, hey bud, thanks for noticing the sin, but the battle's already been fought. Christ has overcome my sinfulness. Isn't that wonderful? That God has mortified your sin underfoot through Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen. So, uh, God sends Israel out to attack Amalek. He could have just judged Amalek directly like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's no different. In Sodom and Gomorrah, he killed everybody. Babies didn't make it. Why don't we get so upset? Why? Because it's not mentioned. But it happened. Just like here. But here he chose to use his people. It's almost, listen now, an eye for an eye. They preyed on Israel. They took the weak and the vulnerable. They came after the children. They came after the, the older. And God says, now Israel's going to do the same to them. Uh, he still, to this day, God is trying to win the battle over our minds. We can be one in Christ. We are saved eternally. But some of us in our minds have never given up the battle. We still think I've got to do something to earn God's love. I've got to do something. I've got to win the battle for God. No, no, the battle's been won. You're, look, look, God took out Amalek in you. He, he dealt with Amalek. Stop trying to fight Amalek. Amen? You don't have to fight anymore. Now, so, so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 
200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, that's another people group, they too did not live in the promised land. They were like, the, like Amalek, they lived outside the promised land. He said, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed, here's why I'm not going to destroy you. Here's why I'm letting you out. Because you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. Let me tell you something. You just don't want to mess with God's people. Even in this day. Don't speak against Israel. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Those who... Bless you, God said to Abraham, will be blessed. You want to bless Israel because you want to be blessed by God. And if you curse Israel, you will be cursed by God. They are, to this day, they have a special place in God's heart. And in the end, as we come to the final day, listen, Jews are going to be saved in mass. It's going to be unbelievable, the salvation that's going to hit this earth as Jews turn to Jesus. Why would we ever turn against God's chosen, holy, dearly loved? Don't do it. So here, the Canaanites are pretty smart. They're pretty sharp folks. The Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. I can just see them, okay? So, so Saul sent word. He said, tell, tell the Canaanites, tell their leaders, you don't want to be there. Get out now. You were good to us. They were not. We're coming after them. And you can just see the Kenites among the Am Amalekites, and they're just doing this. Uh, okay, you guys have a good day. They're out of here, okay? Stepping back, man, getting away, from, getting away from what God's about to bring judgment against. And so uh, Saul shows wisdom here. He shows mercy in letting the Kenites go. Uh, now, verse 7, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havala uh, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to, the, to destruction. Basically what Saul did and his people did was treat that battle like any other battle. After you win the battle, generally, for in some cases, uh, a, a soldier, his, his, his pay was the spoil, whatever he could carry. That was his pay. He didn't get paid by the army. And so here Israel is, they won, so now they take the spoils. They're taking all the good stuff. They're leaving all the bad stuff, taking the good stuff, just like they would against any other nation in any other battle. But is that what the Lord asked them to do? Let me remind you, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. All that they have. Do not spare them. That doesn't mean spare the king. But the, kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Everything, wipe it out. But rather than carry out God's command, Saul became selective in his obedience like selective hearing and selective thinking, you know, uh, selective obedience here. First, Saul took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and only destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Secondly, Saul and the people spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lamb, and all that was good. In typical fashion, folks, they're not treating 
the Amalekites any different than anybody else. But remember, this is God's judgment against Amalek. For Israel to carry out exactly as God commanded would say to other nations something about God. They didn't show other nations a clear picture of the character of their God's holiness and justice. That's a grievous sin. Okay, and, and so they actually destroyed everything that had little or no value, but they kept the best for themselves. The most grievous sin of Israel, though, on that day was not honoring God's heart in judgment. When they came home from battle, what does the Scripture say? They came home happy. They were joyful. In fact, even the king that they spared was happy. He figured by the fact that he got away from the battlefield without dying, man, I'm in good shape. The worst is behind me. He's happy about it. Listen, that is a dishonoring of God. When God brings judgment, there is not supposed to be joy and happiness. There's nothing joyful and happy about the judgment of God. Yet that's what God's people are doing. They're dishonoring God by their actions, by their behavior, by, by, by their temperament. So what's the takeaway? Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Saul and his men obeyed as far as it suited them, which is total disobedience to God's will. Now we hear God's response to Saul and his sinful rebellion. Look at verse 10. And the, Lord of the, uh, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. So the spiritual leader is angry and cries all night because Saul has so dishonored the name of the Lord. God himself, it says here, God is regretting. In some versions, it says God repents having made Saul king. Now that raises a great, a great question that let's... Again, this is another theological issue that we need to look at to try to help bring clarity because some of you read that and you go, man, I'm just that confuses me. So God can actually regret a decision He made? I thought you said He has foreknowledge and He never goes back on a decision. Now you're saying the Scripture says He regretted making the decision. So let me try to explain for you, okay? Uh, does God have regrets or does God repent? Uh, the verse indicates that. That's exactly what we read. But wait a minute. Look down, same chapter, verse 29. Look what the man of God, the spiritual leader, Samuel, says about God. And also, the glory of Israel. Notice capital G. He's not talking about the Shekinah here. He's talking about God Himself. That is a title for God the Father. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So what are we to take from that? Before God moves us too far away from the statement in verse 11, he gives us something else to think about. He said, I regret making Saul king. But before he even leaves the chapter, he says, but I'm not a God that I lie, and I don't regret in the way that you're thinking, the way a man regrets. So let me explain this to you. God's repentance or His regret happens in spite of perfect foreknowledge. 
You have to be God to be able to do that. In other words, to be able to know ahead what's going to happen, knowing ahead that Saul is going to disobey him in the, in the battle with the Amal Amalekites and still re say, I regret making him king. Only God can do that. How do you feel sorrow over something you knew ahead was going to happen that way? That's what God has that we don't have. We, the way it works for us, we regret things that happen that we weren't aware of until it happened. Oh, I regret what came out of my mouth right there. You didn't plan ahead to say it. You didn't know you were going to say it. God plans ahead, knew that he would regret, knew he would feel sorrow, yet he went forward with his plan. All that says is God feels. Our God feels. God's way of repenting is unique to God. Scripture tells us that God is not a man that he should have regret, meaning God is not a man that he should regret as a man regrets in the ignorance of his ignorant future. God knows the future, but he can still regret. When God makes a promise to us, he knows all future circumstances and can never be caught off guard, but he can feel sorrow for it, knowing what's coming. He can feel sorrow. For God to say, I regret that I made Saul king, is not the same as saying, you and I would say, well, I would not make him king if I had to do it over again. Um, God would do it over again. Because God never second guesses his decisions. He just feels for the decisions that he makes. Does that make sense to you? Does that help a little bit? The other way to look at this is to understand there are places in the Bible where God speaks in a way that does not reflect His character. It reflects ours. He says things so that we can understand, not because that's exactly the way it is for Him. Let me give you an example. In the beginning, God breathed breath, life into man. Does that mean that God has a nose and a mouth to take in air and then breathe it out? That's what he said. If you're going to take it at surface value, God has a nose and a mouth like us. He breathes like us. Really? God needs the air that he created to exist? Yet the Bible says it that way. Why? So you and I can grasp God doing what he did even though he didn't do it because he's bound by the same laws that we're bound by. And that's why he says it's a beautiful sunrise in the Bible. It says that God stopped the sun so that they could finish the battle. Really? The sun's not moving. The earth is in rotation around the sun. Is God dumb? No. He spoke in a way we understand. We don't see the earth moving. We see the sun. It looks like the sun's moving. It's not called an earth rise and an earth set. It's a sunrise, a sunset. So this is the, much in the, same, in the same vein, okay? Understanding God here. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, 
for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So God's heart was broken over Saul's disobedience. The man who started out humble and submitted to God eventually went on, on his own way and chose to disobey God. It also grieves Samuel, though, here, as he cries out to the Lord all night, the Scripture says. That tells you that Samuel, listen, had God's heart. Just as it grieved God, it grieved Samuel, the man of God. That's what it means for us to have a heart after God. Listen, the way God sees things, we see things. When you have a heart after God, when you've aligned yourself with the Word of God, then the things that break the heart of God break your heart. You're not like the world anymore. You're not going by what breaks the world's heart. You're going by what breaks God's heart. See the difference? Verse 12, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Saul, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed uh, and passed on and went to, down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. <laughs> oh, what a crock. Saul wasn't grieved over his sin. Instead, he's quite pleased with himself. So much so that he set up a monument to himself, it said right here. He set up a monument to himself. Pretty bad when you grieve the Lord and have no clue you've done it. He doesn't have any clue. He's thinking he did a good thing. On top of that, Saul pronounces a blessing over Samuel. Now you've got the king, who's a military leader, a political leader, who's giving a blessing like he's the priest. And he's going to bless who? The priest? No, the priest is the one who gives the blessing. So he's playing the role of a priest. He set up a monument to himself, a shrine to himself. Now he's telling the man of God, bless you. In the name of, the, of your God, bless you, bless you. What a bold, prideful heart, boasting of his disobedience because of his pride. That's called self-deception. He probably really believed what he was telling Samuel. He probably did. He probably believed, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. See, pride always leads us into self-deception. You say, I don't know, Pastor Greg, I don't, I don't think it's possible um, to, be, to be deceived like that. Um, that's what deception means. You don't know it. Well, I know I'm not being deceived. You don't know it. So that's why we should never measure our own heart. We let the Holy Spirit reveal what's in our heart. We check our heart daily because your heart's deceitful above all things. What is the heart, the Bible says? Deceitful. It will fool you in thinking you're right when you're wrong. That's pride and disobedience. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of the oxen that I hear if you've done such a good thing? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. He throws in at the tail end the part that he obeyed God in. The rest we have given for destruction. Only one little piece that he followed God in. The rest of this, he's making excuses. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I can just see Saul going on and on with his excuses for what he did. 
And, and the man of God, oh, stop it, just shut up. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to the man of God, speak. <laughs> Pride and disobedience makes us blind and deaf to our own sin. Folks, this is for us. We can easily get where Saul is here, believe me. What was completely obvious to Samuel was absolutely invisible to Saul. We all have blind spots, places in our lives where sin entangles us and we don't even think it's happened. Listen to me. That is why we need to be in fellowship with one another. That's one of the safeguards that God has given His people in this day, the church. It's a safeguard to have fellowship with brothers and sisters, letting them be your rearview mirror. You know, in a car, every car has a blind spot, right? You can look, use the rearview mirror, and, and, you know, and you'll see things. You don't see everything. And if you just turn and look, you're not going to see everything. There's still some blind spots. But if you allow, if you are humble enough to allow good, godly friends who are not perfect, but they have the same heart as you to walk in purity before God. And you allow them, give them time in your life to speak truth to you. Let them speak to you about things. That's how you keep from becoming like Saul. Because, because your heart's deceitful. You don't know when sin is entangling. Not every time. Sometimes we, we deceive ourselves. We need this in our life. Saul's on his own, and he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even know. And so the man of God says, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And what's Saul's response? Oh, well, we, the people saved some of the choice animals so we could make offering. And listen to what he said. To your God. Out of the mouth, the what speaks? The deceitful heart. This is a series of excuses that Saul's giving. First, he blamed the people, not himself. Second, he included himself in the, in the obedience. He said, the rest we have devoted to destruction. Third, he justified what he kept because of its fine quality, the best of the sheep and the oxen. Fourth, he claimed to do it for a spiritual reason, so we can make sacrifice to your God. Even in his excuse, he revealed the real problem. He, had a, he, he lacked a relationship with God the Father. Notice how he spoke of God to Samuel, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, your God. Lord was not Saul's God. Why? Because Saul was Saul's God. The Lord was the God of Samuel, not Saul. In his pride, Saul removed the Lord God from the throne of his heart. So Samuel, in hearing these lies and excuses, finally tells him, just, just shut up. Now it's time for Saul to be quiet and to listen to the word of the Lord through Samuel. If, if a man of God says to you, you need to be quiet and listen. God's trying to speak to you. The last thing you should do is open your mouth. And so what does he say? Speak! As if he's giving, he's giving the man of God permission. It's another way of controlling the situation. 
manipulating. But this time he's not speaking to some idiot that would, that would fall and not speak and do whatever. He, now he's speaking to the man of God. He's speaking to God. <laughs> and Samuel's going to speak on, he's not going to stop speaking because he said speak, and he's not going to speak because he said speak. He's going to speak because God's about to say something. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, you are, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you a mission, on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? On the surface, Saul committed the sin of disobedience, but below the surface is the root of his sinfulness. What is that? Real pride. Deep-seated pride. Samuel reminds Saul how he started out as a young man who was humble, who didn't see himself as king, didn't think it was possible. He had such a humble heart. But oh, how he's changed. Now he rules on his own heart. God no longer rules. He started out small in his own eyes, but over time God became small in his own eyes. And so Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of... Man, oh man, what a stubborn, hard-headed, stiff-necked guy he is. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. <laughs> so he still insists that he's innocent, even after being confronted directly with his sin. And again, that's called deception. He's deceived. He's self-deceived. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent. I have bought, brought Agag, the king of Amalek, um, you, you're standing, you said that you took on the mission, which was to wipe them all out. Yet you're standing in the, with one of them right there with you. See, that's how blind he is to his sinfulness. He couldn't see that he didn't wipe them out. The king's standing right there with him. And now the blame game picks up. Verse 21, but the people took, off the spoil, took of the spoil sheep and oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. The people did it. What kind of a king is that? Blaming the people. Good grief. Sounds like America. So easy for us as politicians to pass on to everybody else our problems. Nobody's guilty except others. Everybody else is guilty. So sad. Shows you how far, how deep we are in deception and sin and pride. I can't help but remember from the last chapter how Saul was so zealous to give a death sentence to any man who ate before the battle was finished. He was even willing to execute his own son. And yet here he can't even see his own sin before God. Verse 22, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, Samuel is saying to him, religious rituals without obedience is empty before God. Being faithful to attend church without true heart worship of God when you come, you're better off not going. 
If you just think that somehow by doing a religious duty that puts you in right position with God, Satan's going to make kindling wood out of you in hell. It's not about what you do. It's not, that's not the worship, the act of worship. It's what's in your heart. So Samuel's just calling him out on it. Psalm 51, verse 16, write it down. Here it is, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. This is David. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. God will never turn away a person who comes with a repentant heart before Him. But He's not interested in the person, the man or the woman, or the, or the boy or girl who comes in and playing a game where I just go to church, look the part, sing the songs, say the amen, and think I'm somehow in good standing with God. Only a broken, contrite heart will God not turn away from. The rest of it, He will turn away. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of God is against those who do evil. He's not playing games with us. Even under this age of the church, when Christ has paid the price and we're living under a new covenant, that's not an excuse for us to go to church for the wrong reasons or to read the Bible for the wrong reasons, to try to impress people. Remember when Jesus addressed... He was, they were talking to him, and he addressed what real prayer is and what real, a real heart is of worship. And he said, one guy goes, shows up to pray, and it's the, the Pharisee. And he starts his prayer off, oh, God, you know, I'm glad I'm not a sinner like this guy over here. And he's praying out loud. I'm glad that I give of a tenth of all that I have, and oh, I'm so faithful to you. It was a show. And then this little guy comes up. And he's tattered clothes, and he just falls to his knees, and he rips open his shirt, and he can't even lift his head to heaven. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus turned to his disciples, and he said, which one do you think went home justified? The guy who did it for a show or the guy who from his heart repented of his sin. That's what God doesn't despise. God races towards any of us who come to a position of repentance before Him. Every time we go to church, honestly, that's what it, to me it means to prepare your heart to worship God in church. Long before you get to church, you don't, you don't go to church. If, if you're going and you're thinking, okay, I'm going I'm to see if worship's good today. I'm going to see if, if it's going to be a good experience today. I want to see if preacher, preacher Greg has a good sermon for me today. You know? uh, you're coming in. See, what you, you just described was a consumer Christian. You're basing the success of worship on how people perform for you. God's not interested in consumer Christians. He wants communer Christians. Those who commune long before they get to the service, they already started that morning in prayer. They've already had fellowship with God. They prepared their heart. It doesn't mean that on the way to church the kids don't start getting nasty and loud in the back seat and you have to... That happens too. That's life, right? But, but you, you, your heart is... For the Lord, and you're preparing yourself before the Lord.
you show up that way. Service isn't successful because of somebody giving you what you want. It's successful because you surrendered all. For you will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, please, I urge you, I beseech you, please, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Just as the priest would lay the animal on the altar and take its life. Paul's saying, no, no, we're not talking about you laying your life, your body on the altar and taking your life. We're talking about a living sacrifice. That every day, spiritually, you see yourself as spiritually bankrupt apart from the work of Christ. You always come with a spiritual hunger before God. David said, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for thee, O God. When can I go be with the Lord? Wow. See the difference? And listen to the next verse. Listen to what Samuel says to Saul, trying to get him to see the blindness and the deafness of his self-deception. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. A rebellious, stubborn, rejection, rejecting heart of God, uh, towards God. Uh, when you reject God, it's like you're practicing the occult. It's the same thing to God. To reject God, you might as well just go out and be a Satan worshiper. To, re to reject God um, uh, and, and to become stubborn like that... Uh, it's like uh, you're worshiping an, a false idol. You might as well worship a false idol. Just go ahead and say it. The NFL's my God. I live for the NFL. When, the NFL. when my team does well, I'm never happier on the earth. When my team fails, man, I'm the worst. I'm the most miserable man on the earth. I live for the NFL. I live for the NBA. I live for shopping. If I don't have a credit card in my hand, then I'm not going to be happy. You know, you know how people are. We just have all of our gods. My iPhone. If I didn't have this, I wouldn't be able to make it through a day. Has anybody ever said that? Seriously? You can't make it without this? That's a god. That's a god. That's why I use an older cell phone. Because I don't want to worship it. That's why I don't buy new cars. Not because it's evil to buy a new car, but for me, I don't want to worship. I don't want to get into a car and smell that new leather because I'll fall in love with it. Now I'll start parking that brand new car with no scratches way out off the parking lot, at the edge of the parking lot where nobody else parks because I don't want it to get scratched. I'm worshiping it. There's nothing in this world that should replace God. You might as well just go ahead and, 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 and worship Satan. That's what he's saying. It's the same thing. Rebellion against God. 
not surrendering to Him. Rebellion is like divination. Presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. So even though God rejected Saul here in this verse, it would be another 25 years before there was another king enthroned in Israel. Saul's rejection was final, but it was not immediate. So God used 25 years to do what? To raise, raise up the guy who would have a heart after him. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, Now he finally, hello, clue, you got a clue. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Be, here it is, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, there's something in that that kind of irritates me. His statement begins like a genuine confession, but that changes as he continues. Because I feared the people. Now he's still making an excuse. Why can't you just stop with, I sinned against the Lord? Why do you have to blame the people? So you're t saying you're not strong enough as a God? Or to fear, to fear God more than people? You can't do that? That's what you did. But he's, he's, he's blaming people again. To, to fear the people is another sin. So he used one sin to justify another sin. What a mess. Verse 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. So instead of dealing with the deeper issues of his heart, which is rebellion and stubbornness against God, he thought that a word from Samuel would fix everything. Please, you know, return with me that I may bow before the Lord. But here's the thing. A word or two from Samuel isn't going to appease God any more than praying to Mary is going to appease God. Both mean nothing. People don't do it for you. It's got to be in your heart, right, when you repent. Verse 26, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So Samuel has nothing more to say on this matter other than what the Lord already said through him. There's nothing more to talk about. Saul, Saul's desperate action of grabbing hold of Samuel's robe, that's just a vivid object lesson here of how the kingdom was torn away from him. Saul might have thought there was a way out of this. He wondered what he could do to fix the problem. Maybe if I just hang out with Samuel, if Samuel will let me go with him, the people will see me with the man of God and they'll think everything's okay. You're covering up. You still haven't got it. True repentance, listen, is hating the sin the way the Lord hates the sin. True repentance, you don't care to cover up anymore. You're okay for it to come out. There's no hiding nothing. You just want it out. Really. No reason. I don't have to give an excuse anymore. I don't have to justify my actions because I was raised by parents who were wild and wicked. You won't do that anymore. You don't give any more excuses. You just say, I have sinned against the Lord. You come clean. Verse 29, and also, look, look what Samuel says. The glory of Israel, capital G, so he's speaking of God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. In other words, you're asking me what you can do to fix this. I'm telling you, God spoke, and that's it. God does not change. 
So there's nothing you can do. At this point, it's done. Now, you can still repent. You can still repent, but that doesn't mean that God's going to give you the kingdom back. God's already made his decision about that. Verse 30. So, I mean, Saul needed to hear this, right? He needed to hear all this. Verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders. All right, he just said he sinned. Now he's saying it again, but this time he tacks a little differently. Now I've sinned, yeah, but now honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So he's, he's more concerned about his image than he is his sin. He doesn't see his sin the way God sees his sin. Get, that's how you get to the bottom, folks. You see your sin the way God sees it. Uh, back when, you know, there's times where people will respond to the altar, and I've seen people come up just weeping uncontrollably as they come to an altar. And immediately, somebody's going to run up and put their arm around them. It's okay. It's okay. Oh, Get away from them. They might be repenting. They don't need your comfort when they're repenting before God. Let them repent. Then after they settle down, then you can walk up. Can I pray with you about anything? Join them where they are. But don't, don't enable somebody to make excuses. Don't, God doesn't want comfort when He's dealing with repentance with someone. What, is it, what, is it, what, what leads to repentance in the Bible? Comfort and compassion? No. Godly sorrow. There is compassion. That's why God's having you repent. He's showing you compassion. He's giving you a chance to turn your life around, go a different direction. But it's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Let them repent. Don't bail people out. You got a family member and they're, they're turning to the Lord and they're saying, man, you know, I've, just, I've, I've made such a mess in my life. And they start to break down as they think about what they've done and how they've rejected God and what a mess they've made and they're just starting to break down and you're like, oh no, no, it's really, it's, it's okay. God loves you. Of course He loves them. That's why they're doing what they're doing. They're coming clean with a God who loves them. Let them do it. Don't bail them out. And don't also just agree, yeah, you sure have made a mess. Man, what a mess you made. No, don't, don't beat them up with it. But just let them have their time to say what they need to say as they're repenting. Does that make sense? It's really hard, though, isn't it? Think about it. When you see somebody who's in that state, of it's hard not to want to go up and comfort them. But that's not the moment for the comfort. There is a time for comfort. It's just not right then. Don't do it right then. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now, did it do any good in getting him back into the kingdom? No, not at all. That was a decision that God made in its final. Samuel allowed Saul to come with him in the worship and to worship the Lord. Why? Because he wants Saul to see the seriousness of his sins in the presence of a holy God who meets out both mercy and justice. So yeah, you can kneel down with me. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Wow. Yeah, Saul, come on with me. I want to show you what it looks like when God brings judgment and the seriousness of God's judgment, and you don't take it lightly like you did. So he brings Agag. Now, this is, a, this is 
at least a day later. Agag's thinking, man, I'm free and clear. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. But the issue's not yet resolved in the eyes of God. He wanted them all wiped out, right? And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. I'm free and clear. Yeah, right. Uh, and Samuel said, as your sword, Agag, has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel, the man of God, hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. In the same way that Samuel understood what it meant to raise a blade against an animal in an animal sacrifice before God, he raised the blade against Agag. And he hacked him up. That was what God wanted, judgment. Did he take joy in it? Was he happy doing it? Was he laughing as he did it? The Bible says that he went away and he cried. He wept over it. He didn't take joy in carrying out that kind of a judgment, but he did it, and he needed Saul to see. That's what it looks like to obey God. This is an example of God letting the punishment fit the crime. Agag was the wicked and violent leader of a wicked and violent people. God's judgment against him and his people was just. Agag's not some innocent bystander. He's the king of the people who picked off the Israelites whenever he could, just like the kings of that people before him. And so God's, look, it's eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. God's very serious about it. Now notice Samuel did this before the Lord. This isn't done in secret. This isn't, this isn't Samuel carrying out this, this unrestrained anger against an enemy. No, this is a man of God who isn't angry. He's not doing this in anger. He's doing this in fearful obedience to God. Notice Samuel did this before the Lord. In our day, we're commanded in the New Testament to live by the laws of our government. We're not to be like an Islamic terrorist who's a coward and on a camera hidden away somewhere takes somebody's head off. We're not to, supposed to act like this. This was a very unique situation, and God was carrying this out in a different covenant than it is now. We're commanded in, the, in Romans to obey the laws of the land. We're commanded by, in Scripture, the great commandment, not just the great commission, which is to go into the world and preach the gospel, but the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're not to carry out these actions. So don't take from this, oh, see, the Bible says I, I can do it. No, not at all. It's not what God's saying to you. We're supposed to love our enemy, pray for those who, who speak against Christ and against us, right? Jesus said, you're blessed if you're persecuted. So it's a whole different situation today. Then Samuel went, verse 34, to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. See? Saul, or Samuel goes away grieving over the actions of Saul. Why? Because the Lord grieved over the actions of Saul. 
and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. I wish this read that, Samuel, that Saul turned back to the Lord and Samuel went to his house and prayed with him and everything was made right. Not that he would get the kingdom again. God's already made that decision, but at least now he's in right standing. It doesn't say that. If, if Saul wanted to, he could have gone to Samuel at any time. He never did because it wasn't in his heart to do it. And that's why Samuel never went back to him. Because he knew. God, God had revealed this man's not going to change. That's why he can't be king. That's why I'm putting David in as king. And we're going to talk about David next week. So this is a difficult passage tonight, you know, to, to break that down. I do hope, though, it helps you understand a little bit more about why something so grievous, so, so uh, it's an atrocity, but it's really a judgment. And it comes from a God who's perfect and pure and good and kind and loving and just, just, just. He's holy. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that, Lord, tonight as we close our time, we are reminded that we live in an age now where we walk in the grace of God and we show kindness and love to everybody, even those who despise you and reject you we still want to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, that doesn't, but our love for them doesn't mean that we become like them. It doesn't mean that we disobey you, that we go against the word of God. Help us to remain humble, pure of heart. Help us to walk in obedience to you. That is the greatest way to lift up the name of the Lord in the day that we live. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.